Jai, Jai, Nantakoti Vaishnava Rindiki Jai, Namacharya Shilori Das Takur Ki Jai, Prem Shigaha Shri Krishna Taitanya Prabhupada Shri Doita Gadadhar Shri Vasadi Gaur Bhakti Rindiki Jai, Shri Shri Radha Krishna Gogovina Shine Mukunda Radha Kunda Giti Govardhana Ki Jai, Vrindavan Dhamma Ki Jai, Tura Dhamma Ki Jai, Dhamma Maya Pradhamma Ki Jai, Jagana Puri Dhamma Ki Jai, Ganga Mai Jamuna Devi Ki Jai, Bhakti Devi Ki Jai, Tosi Maharani Ki Jai, Samavekta Bhakta Rinva Ki Jai, Gaura Premananda, All Glories to the Assembled Devotees, All Glories to the Assembled Devotees, All Glories to the Assembled Devotees, All Glories to Sri Guru and Gauranga, All Glories to Sri Prabhupada, Nama Om Vishnu Padaya, Krishna Prasthaya Bhutalashin, Mati Bhakti Rinanda Swamiti Jai Jai Shri Chaitanya Jaya Nityananda Jai Jai Shri Chaitanya Jaya Nityananda Jaya so it's December 29, 2016 at the Otaki Retreat in New Zealand. And we're reading from Sri Chaitanya Charitamrita Anjalila, uh, Chapter 1, Sri Rupa Goswami's Second Meeting with the Lord, Text 32. And we're also going to be referencing, because Prabhupada doesn't know his purport, Majalila 2283. <laughs> Upana Kukura Vaikunte Te Gela Aradina Kehatara Dekana Paila Siddhadeha Pancha Kukura Vaikunte Te Gela Yeah. 
sense that in our modern Western society, dogs are very dear to people. You know, they have special breeds of dogs that they keep in their house, and they treat like children. In fact, people have dogs instead of children. <laughs> they do, actually. And they'll even call the dog their baby, and they have a dog instead of a spouse, and, and so on. So, actually, they, they do. You know, as, as Prabhupada said, if you don't have family, you keep a dog. So we may not really be able to relate to this idea of a dog in Mahaprabhu's time. If you go to India today, in most places, you'll see that dogs are primarily street dogs. And there seems to be one general mutt breed. (laughs) And uh, of course they have their function in society, they eat the rats and the mice and and so forth. Uh, But they're not very much revered by people. Of course it's changing when you go into the cities. I don't see it much in Chennai, but I do, you do see it in Delhi and, and, or in Calcutta, but I do see it in Delhi and Mumbai. You start seeing people with a dog on a leash, and it's a particular breed of dog. I felt very sorry for seeing some of the northern breeds, like St. Bernard's and, and Chow's in, in Delhi. I, my heart was kind of breaking for those dogs. Uh, they belong up in you know Siberia and Alaska, not in, not in Delhi. But anyway, the Indian view of dogs is generally that they're some you know, dirty animal that has its function in society and its function for the family, but uh, they're kept outside. So Shivananda Sain was in charge of bringing all the devotees to Jagannath Puri every year from Bengal. He was the leader of the party. He took care of getting everybody a place to stay, getting everybody prasadam paying all the tolls and the taxes on the way. He was the in charge. Just like here at this festival, we have people that are in charge of making sure everybody gets something to eat and everybody has a place to stay and people get picked up at the airport and the train station. So like that. So that was Shivananda Sain's service that he was doing. So as they were traveling to Jagannath Puri, a dog joined the party. You know, and sometimes that happens if you're walking, a, a dog will come and, and join you. So a dog started coming along, and there it was. A few days it was following the party, and so Shivananda Sain said, well, the dog is now part of our party. So I have as much responsibility to the dog as I do to the human devotees. That's how he was thinking. Now, the Vedic idea of householders is that not only do you feed your children, you also feed the creatures around your house. modern family life, you kill all the creatures around the house. <laughs> family, you, you fed them. Not only did you feed the creatures, you even went outside and said, if anybody's hungry, please come and eat. Before you sat down to eat, you made sure there were no hungry people outside of your door. So this concept with the dog came to me for shelter, so I should take care of it. So every day, Shivananda Sain made sure the dog was fed. 
And even at one point, they had to take a ferry across a river. And again, in India, there's many places still where there's no bridges, and you have to take a ferry. And he wanted to have the dog on the ferry, and the ferryman said, hey, you want to take your dog, you have to pay a toll for your dog. You have to pay the fare for your dog. So she even had the same paid for the dog to go on the ferry. <laughs> you know, he could easily have said, okay, I fed the dog up to this point, now there's a river, you know. But he actually paid for the dog. And then at one stop, he was so busy with paying the tolls and the taxes for everybody that he didn't personally feed the dog. And he asked somebody <coughs> else, please make sure the dog's fed. And that person just spaced out, you know, and didn't do it. And so the dog, not being fed, went away. You know, it's a dog. I'm not getting any food. I'll go someplace else. And Shivananda Singh was very upset. Why didn't you feed the dog? You know, we were supposed to take care of it. And where did the dog go? Where did the dog go when he left the party of devotees? Because he wasn't fed. He went on, he, he went on because they were very close at that time to Jagannath Puri. He went all the way and saw Lord Chaitanya. And that's how Srila Prabhupada starts this purport. He says, this is the result of sadhusanga, consequent association with Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So because the dog got the association of the devotees, the dog was induced to meet the Lord personally. And then when Lord Chaitanya saw the dog, what did Lord Chaitanya do with the dog? He fed the dog coconuts, which, by the way, is not a normal food for a dog. (laughs) I mean, really hungry dogs will eat almost anything, but it, it's not something you normally feed dogs. Um, Jananda Maharaj has written a book about animals in Krishna consciousness. Have you seen that book? So the animals that... He's not talking about so much from the Shastra, but in our modern Islam, you know, that we've had some cows who come in the temple room for, to see the deities. And, uh, where I lived in North Carolina, a devotee came with a cat... And this cat would sit outside the window every morning for Mangalarti and sing. Cat singing, obviously. (laughs) With everybody else. And this cat uh, would only eat prasadam. Wouldn't eat anything else. And cats, as you may know, need to eat meat. Dogs can be vegetarian, but cats get very ill if if they're vegetarian. So this cat was not very healthy. Uh, but he never took care of his fur or anything. It was kind of like an abatuta. <coughs> you know how cats are really into grooming and, and stuff? Right? But this cat, he didn't groom himself. He didn't catch any mice. And he would eat prasadam with his paw. He wouldn't just eat with his mouth like most animals. But, you know, you give him prasadam and he would scoop his paw. We're not sure what devotee he was in a former life, but uh, a warning about the mentality we should have in this life. But anyway, so, I mean, that cat would eat things like watermelon. <laughs> it would eat these bizarre non-cat foods, you know, just kind of scratching your head. So this dog was eating coconut, and not only was the dog eating coconut, what else was the dog doing? It was chanting. It was chanting Rama Rama. Rama 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 And in this verse it says that, you know, when then the devotees didn't see the dog. And they understood it had attained its Siddhadeya, its perfect body, and gone back to Vaikuntha. It had gone to the spiritual world. 
just very, very simple. By the association of the devotees, by the mercy of the devotees, especially the mercy of Shivananda Singh. Because Shivananda Singh had shown mercy to this animal. Of course, the animal took the first step by following the devotees. But still, because Shivananda Singh has showed the animal mercy. And this Sadhusanga is also, Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu says, it is the root cause, mula, of janma, the awakening of Krishna bhakti, and it is also the primary anga in attaining Krishna prema. So at every step. So we could say, you know, that many things are the root cause, couldn't we? I mean, if we were to say, what's the single thing that you have to do to become Krishna conscious? The other day we read about reading the Bhagavatam, that if you just read the Bhagavatam, you'll become attached to Krishna, you'll go back to Godhead. Or Mahaprabhu also says, Harinama, 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 Evakevala, Kalonasteva, Nasteva, Nasteva, Gatiradika. The only way, the only way, the only way is the holy name. And here we're hearing the root is Sadhu Sangha. So you may think, well, which one? You know, is it reading the Bhagavatam? Is it chanting the holy name? Is it the association of devotees? But of course, they're all linked together. If you associate with devotees, what are you going to do together? You're going to talk about the Bhagavatam. You're going to chant the holy name. If you chant the holy name, you must have heard it from the devotees. If you, if you read the Bhagavatam, you probably got the Bhagavatam from a devotee. And the Bhagavatam is full of the devotees. So you can't really separate them and say, well, it's just this, it's just this, it's just this, it's just this. So keeping that in mind, that glorification of one Anga is not a denigration or a minimizing of another Anga. Uh, we'd like to focus today on this Anga of Sadhu Sangha, which Mahaprabhu says is the Mukya Anga, or the chief Anga, and the Mula, or the root. And this theme is throughout the Bhagavatam, is throughout the Chaitanya Charitamrita, is throughout the writings of the Goswamis. If you read Madhurya Kadambani, uh, Vishnu Chakravati Thakur, and he talks about how Bhakti is causeless. That Krishna is neutral. Right? Myers has been talking a lot about how Krishna doesn't want forced love, right? So what does that mean practically? If God doesn't want forced love, it means he remains neutral. And he says, look, I'm here if you want me. And you don't want me, okay, fine. I'm not going to interfere with your independence. But somebody interferes. Who interferes? The devotee interferes. And Prabhupada says in his uh, Bhagavad Gita purport, the devotee of the Lord is more merciful than the Lord because he knows the purpose of the Lord. So the devotee knows that the Lord wants the happiness of the living entity and knows that the living entity will only become happy if he becomes reconnected. So therefore the devotee makes an effort to reconnect the fallen living entities. And Sanatana Goswami writes how the residents of Vaikuntha are coming into the material universes to try to help people attain to Krishna consciousness. And just like we're trained, as Srila Prabhupada trained us, go out into the street, go to people who aren't coming to the temple. We don't just have our temple, if you want to come, you can come. We go out, we go out to the public. We go out in the street, nowadays we go out on the internet, also, which has become the new public meeting place. 
isn't it? We go to the malls. We go wherever there are people gathered and we give, we give them the holy name and we give them the Bhagavatam and we give them prasada. And Vishnachagavata Thakur says the Lord's mercy follows the mercy of the devotee. So I'd like to look a little bit about why is it that Sadhu Sangha is the root? You know, because if we get this one thing right, everything else will follow. And if we get this one thing wrong, everything else is messed up. I mean, just frankly, everything else is messed up. We get this one thing wrong, yes, Aprasada, Bhagavad Prasadam, yes, Aprasada, Nagatikatopi. If we mess up our dealings with the devotees, then you can read the Bhagavatam for a hundred million years and chant the holy name for a hundred million years, for a hundred million years. You know, there was this one uh, disciple of Srila Prabhupada who uh, was criticizing Bhakti Siddhanta Saraswati. And Srila Prabhupada said, okay, after ten million births you'll attain Krishna Prema. I mean, at least Prabhupada said he would attain Krishna Prema at some point. But if this is, we've really got to get this part right. It's, as Mahaprabhu was saying, this is the root. This is the root. And if we're doing the Angas of Bhakti and we're finding that we're not making the progress that we want and we're not really becoming attached to Krishna, that we're not hearing the name, then this is a one very key place that we can look. There may be other reasons also. We may be mixing Bhakti with other processes and there may be other reasons. But this can be a key reason. And if we get this right, then even if we're a dog, Maharaj has been talking a lot about being human and having human qualities. And every time I was listening to him, I thought, maybe for me it's a little late. I'm not quite sure if I still have time in my life to develop human qualities. But even if we think, you know, I'm just simply a dog, still by the association of devotees, uh, one can attain all perfection. So that's pretty cool, huh? What do you think? All right. So let's look at this because Lord Chaitanya is saying in Mudra 22.83 that it's both the root of the beginning and the supreme anga of the end. So I thought we'd look at beginning, intermediate, and advanced bhakti and how sadhu sangha plays a role at each stage. So beginning bhakti is very much like for this dog. Would you say that? Is this dog a good example of a beginner in bhakti? Okay. And this is, when we're dealing with people just coming to bhakti, it's something like that. They just kind of follow along, right? They're just kind of following along. Oh, I'm coming, I'm getting something to eat. Here are some nice people. Maybe I can get some shelter with these people. And here Prabhupada is saying that the main thing we can do is prasadam, the holy name, and dancing. So I think that this is the main emphasis of a lot of the preaching that goes on here in New Zealand, isn't it? Give people prasadam, get them to chant the holy name, and get them to dance. Now Prabhupada does have, uh, he also says to engage them in service. I think we're also pretty good at that here in New Zealand, aren't we? Don't you have these like service exchange you do with people? Which is, by the way, infinitely clever. If you can't pay for the yoga class, do a service exchange. And people don't understand that that's building up their bhakti sukriti by doing service like that. Even, you know, in the beginning days of the movement, 
Srila Prabhupada was preaching in the Bowery. And so one alcoholic stumbles into the class, you know, into the middle of the class and goes right through the room to the back and sticks some toilet paper in the bathroom. And then, you know, stumbles back out of the door. And Prabhupada didn't say, hey, what are you doing disturbing the class? He said, ah, he has started his bhakti. So, (laughs) you know, if someone opens the door for a devotee, whatever service, Krishna takes note. We were just reading it uh, at the VIHE, within the third canto, this verse where Krishna gave himself even to Putana. And this was the verse that who went into ecstasy on hearing this verse? Pundarik Vidyanidhi. So, Pundarik Vidyanidhi was a very rich, opulent householder. And so, Gurada Pandi had some doubt. You know, could he really be an advanced Vaishnava when he's living in such opulence? And then, as soon as Pundarik Vijanidi heard this verse that Krishna gave himself to a she demon, then he just lost it completely. You know, he just started rolling on the ground and crying and get out of He says, Wow, he's Vaishnava. And I can't remember the other two, I'm sorry, but there's three verses. The Acharya say there's three verses that Sukadeva Goswami, hearing from the Bhagavatam, convinced him to become a devotee and to come back and hear from Vyasadeva. And that's one of them, that Krishna gave himself even to a Shidimu. And Prabhupada writes in the commentary of that verse that Krishna will take a very little thing and give a lot. You know, like we say, we like to say the verse, Pratram Pushpam Palamtayam Yome Bhakta Prajati Tadam Bhakti Paritam Ashrami Paritatina. You just give Krishna a little water, a little flower. Right? Krishna doesn't need our little flowers. It's nice, at least we have carnations that have some fragrance. But Krishna doesn't need these little flowers. He has, you know, con- fully conscious personal flowers in the spiritual world. <laughs> I mean, even the demigods fragrance the air for 80 miles around. You know that? The demigods, they're drinking this liquid nectar from the four trees of the universe. And by drinking this, I mean, if we create a fragrance, it's not usually... I quite like that. So just imagine if the demigods create a nice fragrance for 80 miles around, what did the flowers in the spiritual world do? I mean, can we even imagine? So Krishna's not so impressed with whatever little flowers we can grow. But if we just give him a flower, Srila Prabhupada says in one class, if the pujari offers a flower and there's an ant on the flower and the ant kisses the lotus feet of the Lord, then the ant is as good as the pujari. My apologies to the pujaris. <laughs> this is the, the mood of the Lord. You know, or even there's a, sometimes when I stay at devotees' homes, so I see on their altar, they may have deities that are very small. Really little, little small jagannathis. You ever seen those really little tiny jagannathis? And so they'll put by their deities a little tiny little cup of water. You know, the cup is not even as big as the last joint in my little finger. You know, a little, little teeny tiny thing that's holding like one milliliter of water. It's as if you have to fill them with an eyedropper. You know, it's one little drop of water in, in, in this cup. And, and, you know, when Krishna says, give me water, <laughs> give me one, one, drop, one drop of water. 
But Krishna's satisfied with that. <coughs> There's the story of, of Draupadi's pot. You all know that story? So Draupadi, before they went into the forest for 13 years of exile, so Draupadi was given this pot, I think by the sun god, and there was this benediction that until she ate, the pot would supply unlimitedly whatever was cooked in it. So because of that, she had the regular habit of fasting all day. Just imagine, in order to feed your family and everybody, you had to fast all day. So she would cook in the pot, and then she could serve from the pot unlimitedly. And then finally, after everybody was finished eating, she would eat. So this is, on a side note, we see the character of the government officials in those times. She was royalty. She, she was the, the empress of the world. Of course, she was in exile, but still she was the empress. It wasn't like Marie Antoinette that said, oh, they don't have bread, at they eat cake. You know, it wasn't that. They didn't have that mood of arrogance. They had a mood of serving. You know, nowadays they talk about servant leadership, but they really, they really were. It really was servant leadership in that runty Dave who gave away all of his food. Anyway, that's a side topic. So Duryodhana... Uh, being a not particularly nice person. So he asked Dravasamuni to visit the Pandavas at the time after Draupadi would have taken her meals. Because he entertained Duryodhana, um, um, Dravasa, Duryodhana entertained Dravasa, and Dravasa said, oh Duryodhana, I'm really pleased with you. What benediction can I give you? And he said, you know, you benedicted our home. Why don't you benedict my cousins, the Pandavas? That would make me really happy. Just listen, it's very important what time you get there. You know, you've got to get there at like 6 o'clock at night. That's the right time. Otherwise, they'll be upset. So, Dravas is a partial manifestation of Lord Shiva. He's the son of Muni. And so he came with, sometimes it says 10,000 disciples, sometimes it says 60,000 disciples. But anyway, it was a big crowd. Like here we have, what, maybe 200 people? that we're feeding. So imagine if you had to feed 10,000 or 60,000. There's a, a nice video online about um, the yatras in Vrindavan that Radhana Swami takes where they have thousands of people and how they feed those thousands of people. And if you haven't watched it, go and watch it. Wow, they have these brahmacharis that are all engineering graduates. It's India, so. You know, in India, there's two occupations for your kids, especially boys, but even girls. Doctor or engineer. That's it. There's no other jobs and there's no other varnas. That's, that's it. <laughs> Only choices. So a lot of these guys become engineers. And then Radha Swami says, before you move in the Brahmacharya Ashram, you have to have a degree. You have to have a profession. So if you decide to get married, you don't go out into the world, you know, like, oh my God, what do I do? So a lot of these brahmacharis are IT specialists or engineering specialists. So they engineered a mobile kitchen. Wow. It is just so impressive that they took from Mumbai out to Vrindavan and they set up this mobile kitchen to feed thousands of people and it's all organized with these. They even have conveyor belts to move the pots. And I mean, it's anyway, you got to see it. It's a fantastic video. It, it really, this video makes me think of Prabhupada talks about the blind man and the lame man. You know, Indian culture and Western efficiency. That was very impressive. They test all their recipes all during the year. They have international cuisine. It's not all Indian food. And they have a testing kitchen. 
and they write down all the recipes after they're tested, and then they, you know, multiply them for the group, and everyone has to follow the recipes and the serve out. Everything is so organized. But all Dropity had was a pot. <laughs> you know, she didn't have a whole ITT engineering team from Mumbai with their conveyor belts and their trucks. You know, she just had her pot. So when they came, she'd already eaten out of her pot, but she hadn't washed it. Was it you, Maris, who said that you thought the remnants was what was left in the pot? Was that you? That was, when I was reading Prabhupada's books, I never had the association of devotees. Right. So I thought, what's the point of offering your food? And then you eat the remnants, because remnants means you, after offering, throw everything out of the pot, and whatever comes to the bottom, that's what you get. <laughs> So she just had these these remnants left in in her pot, not by throwing everything away, thankfully, but by feeding everybody. Uh, But the pot was empty, she'd eaten out of it. And so when Dravasamuni came with his 10,000 or more disciples, uh, there was nothing to feed them. And the system was that after you travel, you first bathe. So after a long travel, one should bathe. It, it readjusts all the subtle airs in the body. But this is, if any of you take any long trips, uh, what, first thing you should do when you arrive is you should take a bath. So Javasamuni and his uh, associates said, well, first we're going to bathe, and of course they didn't have showers, they would bathe in the river, which means you don't use the water up. A lot of the way that ancient societies conserved water is they would use the river. Of course, they didn't pollute the river when they used it. And so the water was conserved and not polluted. Anyway, that's another very side note. So they went to the river and they took their bath. And while they took their bath, Jopati started to cry. So even though she's a pure devotee, she's also feminine. It's not that pure devotees are just some sort of, you know, they have their personalities... And there's also a, a transcend, uh, there's a transcendental original gender. So she was crying. And she was crying for Krishna. Krishna, please help me. Krishna, please save me. So Krishna, although he was very far away, what does Yeshua Panishad say? He's very far away, but he's very near as well. So he shows up immediately and he says, is there a problem? And so they explain the problem. He says, let me see the pot. So he looks in the pot and there's some little rice or vegetables stuck in the bottom of the pot. And Krishna takes that and eats that. And then Dravasamuni and all of his disciples immediately felt full as if they'd eaten a big meal. So why is this? Sachincha beta beta tattva. We're all actually one with Krishna also. We're separate from Krishna but also one with Krishna. And therefore when Krishna was satisfied, they were also satisfied. And you know how you feel when you're just eating a big meal? You don't want to see food, right? So they all thought, oh, you know, I don't know how it is that we're full, but we are. And we better not go to Mara's Yudhisthira's house because then we'll offend them. Then we'll come, they will have made a meal for us and we won't have any appetite to eat it. So our host will feel very bad. Right? I have this problem sometimes when I do home programs. I don't like to eat in the evening 
And I'll tell people, you know, I really don't want to eat in the evening. Maybe a cup of milk or something, you know. And if they bring me a full plate of, of prasadam, I don't want to eat it. And then they feel really bad and it's, it's all awkward. So they wanted to avoid this awkwardness, so they left. And this way the Pandavas were saved. And the point, again, is a little tiny offering. Krishna is satisfied. You know, a little bit of vegetable stuck to the bottom of the pot. A little, you know, milliliter of water. Even Putina offering her milk that was mixed with poison. You know, Krishna is, is satisfied. And therefore, if we engage beginners in something small, eating a cookie, saying Krishna's name, dancing, you know, everybody likes dancing and singing. Come to our party and dance and sing and have some good food. Do a little service. Hey, can you help clean up afterwards? Could you help serve? Could you help with this? Krishna becomes pleased. And when Krishna's pleased, something awakens in the person's heart. As Mara said yesterday, our Krishna consciousness is already there. It already exists. It's eternally there. It's not really given by another source, but it's awakened by the devotees. Talk about planting the seed of bhakti, the bhakti lata bij. The seed is already there in the heart, but it's planted by the devotee. Uh, one devotee, uh, one of our scholars in Oxford, Gopinathacharya Prabhu, uh, he gave a wonderful presentation recently at Harvard. Uh, we had a seminar for the 50th anniversary of this kind. Is our spiritual nature inherent or bestowed? And he said, in one sense, it's both. And if you think about this, if you think about a seed, so let's say you take a mango seed or an apple seed. If you cut it open, do you see a mango or an apple in there? Do you see a tree in there? It's inherent there. The mango tree is inherent in the mango seed. The apple tree is inherent in the, ma- in the apple seed. But unless it has water and sunlight, what its inherent nature doesn't manifest. So you could say the mango tree is bestowed upon the mango seed by the water and the sunlight, correct? Could you say that? At the same time, you could say the mango tree is inherent within the mango seed. Both is a fact. But without that, without water, I know archaeologists sometimes find seeds that have stayed for thousands of years, especially chickpeas, garbanzo beans, somehow they seem to last for thousands and thousands of years. You know, they'll dig up some Egyptian mummy and there's these garbanzo beans and they plant them and they grow with some of them. So, although our nature is inherent, without that association of a devotee, it doesn't sprout, it doesn't grow. And Krishna becomes pleased and then that awakens in the heart. The desire of the devotee engages them in service. Of course, it may not fully manifest immediately, just like when a seed starts to sprout, which way does it grow first? Any of you guys plant anything? Down. The seed first grows down. So the beginning sprouting of the seed and the beginning growing of the seed is not visible. It's not that immediately it sends up the leaves. First it puts down the root. So this is we talk about, uh, Prabhupada talks about heaps there's that nice verse that the cowherd boys had heaps of pious activities and therefore they were playing with Krishna. So this is not ordinary sukriti. This is, we're not talking about karmakanda. It's not that if you pile up karmakanda, 
and that you achieve that that qualifies you for bhakti. I mean, good karma is a is helpful for bhakti in an indirect sense that it can bring you to the mode of passion, to the mode of goodness. And Krishna says happiness and the mode of goodness can awaken you to self-realization. But you can also get conditioned by that sense of happiness and think, I'm happy, I'm peaceful, I don't need anything else. So we're not talking about karma sukriti. We're talking about bhakti sukriti. It's in a different category. So there has to be a root system set up before the little leaves come out. And then when the little leaves come out, again, any of you who plant things, the first two leaves that come out, are they the actual leaves? No, they're a different kind of leaves. What do they call that? Endo something's leaves. They're, they're embryonic leaves. And the true leaves of the plant come out next. So that growth has to take place before somebody can have those true leaves of bhakti. And without the association of devotees, how will this happen? How will you know about God? I mean, you can know about some things without the association of devotees. Prabhupada said even an uneducated person can know there must be a God. How could we know there must be a God just on our own? Just through logic and reason, without devotees, without Shastra, without anything. How would you know that there must be a God? Nature. What about nature? Hmm? Mountains, skies. Could you get a little bit more specific? What about the mountains and skies? There's order and design. And a very complex order and design. Um, there was one uh, scientist, Michael Bebe, that wrote a book called Darwin's Black Box about the complexity and interrelation of design and how there must be a designer. And this is really um, very elementary, and we wonder how highly educated people kind of miss this point. So we have, you know, this, this mat. Most of us are sitting on a mat. Is this a very complicated thing, this mat? Is it very complex? But if you looked at it, you could understand immediately it was created by intelligence. Right? And it wasn't created by a two-year-old. It would have to be at least a five- or six-year-old human to create this mat. And if you think about all the steps involved with getting the fiber, you know, it becomes, it's actually quite a complex thing. You, know, you have to grow the fiber, you have to take it from petroleum and so forth, and you have to put it together. So what to speak of a flower? You know, or a grain of rice, which produces a rice plant that has other grains of rice on it. So how else would we know that there's a God? Besides complexity and design and order. Hmm? That we see life comes from life, yes. That's our practical experience. And what can we know about the nature of God? Just on our own, just with our own intelligence. So there must be a God, there must be a creator and designer. Can you tell me anything about the nature of that? Just looking at the world, just looking at nature, what could you say? There must be a person because it requires intelligence to design. And have, it must be a person, otherwise we're supposed to have intelligence. Okay. Now how do we know a person? How do you know it's singular? How by just using our intelligence can we understand it must be singular? Little hint, this argument is given in the Srimad Bhagavatam. 
this law and order, if there were many persons, there would be conflict. Yes. Who gives this argument in the Bhagavatam? Anyone know who makes that argument and where they make it? All of you regular Bhagavatam readers. Yes. Is it the conversation between the Vishnu Buddhas and the Buddhas? Very close. It's right after that. It's a conversation between... After the Yamadudas and the Vishnu Buddhas have a conversation, who has a conversation? The Yamadudas and Yamaraj. And who makes this point? <coughs> nope, the Yamadudas make this point. They go to Yamaraj and they say, we thought you were in charge, but we just got overruled. <coughs> and there can't be two gods. Because if there's two gods, some person would be both punished and rewarded, or neither punished and rewarded, and there'd be chaos. <coughs> and this is... I don't know if I'll get into trouble with Maharaj for this one. This is why in a family you want to have an ultimate decider. Ladies. <laughs> Sorry. I will well, never... In, in New Zealand, everyone knows who's the ultimate okay. decider. <laughs> I see. Okay. So now I'm not in trouble. Okay. I'll come back to you. Know. You have to toe the party line. You have to toe the party line. Okay, okay. He did warn me before he warned you about New Zealand and the ladies. But ultimately, someone has to decide. The most unstable business relationship is is a partner is an equal partnership. Because if you both agree, that's fine. But what happens if you just don't agree? You know what happens? Somebody has to say, okay, we'll go with with your way. So ultimately there has to be one God. That's just the, just the way things work. Anything else we can see about the nature of the Creator? Paradoxical. Oh. You know, I've, I've asked this many times in many places and nobody has said that and that is just brilliant. Right, that's all over the Shastras. He walks and doesn't walk, he's very far, he's very near, he's unborn, yet he's born. But how would you see that in nature? Could you explain that? So many contradictions. Can you give me an example? Bad things happen to good people. And you have mm. to try hard and you don't get success and somebody else works hard and they get success. Or they don't work hard and they get success? Yeah. Wow. I like that. Can I take it and use that in the future? Can I have that? What's your name? Arjuna. Arjuna. I'll try to remember to give you credit for that. I've never heard anyone say that before. That says brilliant. That's brilliant. I love that. Wow. Because, see, that's the main argument that the atheists have against God, is that bad things happen to good people and that there's paradoxes. But it actually shows us the nature of God, that he can be non-dual and yet have seeming contradictions in him. I like that. That's beautiful. I'm really excited. That was worth my whole trip here. <laughs> Anything else we can understand about God by seeing nature? Yes. He must be into love. He must be into love. There's a lot of love in the world. Even among, you know, not all, but even among a lot of the animals. There's a lot of love. The mother elephant, if her baby's dying in a place where there's no food and water, she'll stay with the dying baby and die herself of starvation and dehydration. There's a lot of love in the world, even even the lower level. Yes? 
very special sense of aesthetics. Of beauty, yes. There's also a wonderful um, short video on YouTube about the fact that much in the world cannot be explained by Darwinian function alone. Because a lot of the things in the world are not functional. And the, uh, the video, the person, the narrator, gives the example of why are there different shaped leaves? Why is, does the maple leaf have one shape and the oak leaf has another shape? What's the function of that? Or with the fact that on one oak tree, each leaf has a different shape. That a lot of what exists in nature has no survival function whatsoever. It's just beauty. So I'm looking in this room if there's anything here that's just beautiful. Um, yeah, I thought, not much. But probably... Um, <laughs> Jai Shula, he's beautiful. Okay. <laughs> talking about the people. I was talking about the, the, the room, the architecture. <laughs> you know, so I guess you could say, it's just like ornamental. You could say that brown strip that goes around the room. You know, that's just ornamental. The fact that there's two different colors on the wall, that's ornamental. But you see, especially in Europe, uh, which is a little older society, you see a lot of the buildings have things that are just ornamental. They're not functional. They're not needed to have a building. And generally, if people are wealthy, they put a lot of just ornamental things in their home, right? I visited one home recently. Where was this? It was somewhere in the Middle East. Oh, we took Prasadam at one home, and I noticed in the... Where is that? Oman. Oman. You know exactly what I'm talking about, don't you? Yeah. So in the corner, there was a cloth, like a chutter that was sort of randomly thrown over a piece of furniture. And when you first see that, you think, oh, I guess somebody came in the house and just kind of threw their shutters. <laughs> and then you notice that there was another one, and another one, and another one. And all over the place, there were these just sort of randomly thrown-looking pieces of cloth, which also told me they had no little children in the house. <laughs> and, and this was just for aesthetics. I mean, it was completely useless. There was no... There was no function whatsoever. In fact, it would be a little troublesome to clean a house like that. You know, and you have to kind of... Half of it's falling on the floor, and then after you finish cleaning, you sort of like go... <laughs> put your vase on top of it. So, yeah, Krishna likes beauty. There's a lot of beauty in the world. I mean, are, are flowers necessary? Do we need colorful, fragrant flowers? Are they necessary? No, you could pollinate plants without beautiful fragrant flowers. Okay, anything else we know about the nature of God just by looking at the world? Yes? He must be funny. He must be funny. <laughs> okay, give me an example of how he's funny. Given that we embarrass ourselves so much in our daily course of activities, I think that he must be having a good laugh. <laughs> I like you guys. <laughs> Isaac Prabhupada said, the residents of Vrindavan, they just want to see Krishna smile. You know, we're talking about Lord Chaitanya today. So when I first read the pastime of Lord Chaitanya with the pilu fruit, any of you know that pastime? <laughs> Jagananda brings back pilu fruit from Vrindavan. And some of the devotees knew how to eat it and some of them didn't. But he didn't tell anybody how to eat it. He just gave them the pilu fruit and some of them were eating it improperly and they got a you know, bad taste from the seeds and they went, <laughs> 
Oh, what you tell me was laughing. And I thought, well, the first time I read that, I thought, well, that's not very nice. <laughs> and then I thought, you know, how wonderful it would be to be in that Leela and make Lord Chaitanya laugh. We, we were in a drama at the Govardhan retreat a few years ago, and I got cast as Jatila. <laughs> so, there's, you can see that on, on YouTube, it's there. With meeting in a doctor's disguise. So we had Madhu Mangal was in the, in the drama. So everybody laughs with Madhu Mangal, but they all laugh at Jatila. <laughs> It was wonderful. Even being the person that Krishna and his associates laugh at was, was ecstatic. Okay, so he has a sense of humor. He's funny. Anything else we can tell about the nature of God? Yes? Um, everything that we need is just naturally there. His resources. All, all the resources are there. So he's complete. Very nice. And giving. Giving and complete. Anything else? Yes? Uh, he's empathetic. Ah, how do you see that from nature? Uh, so he understands the human situation and the nature of the kind. Ah, okay. Anything else? Yes? His personality. Ah, how can you tell that? Okay, so you get to see that the, the creation has, you know, even plants have personalities? You know, people do it with plants. And as far as empathy, do you all know that plants take care of each other? Did you know that? There's this new book, what is it, The Hidden Secrets of Trees or something like that. I've just read excerpts from it. How, how trees and plants communicate with each other and warn each other, take care of each other. And they have a social network. They actually have a chemical social network underground. And when people plant trees like in rows with a certain separation between them, it's, they get lonely. Literally. And they don't take care of each other as well, and they don't, um, they're not as healthy. Anything else we can tell about? Yes? Whoa, powerful. A wind? You know, an earthquake, and an ocean, and wind that can take a little piece of metal and put it through, a little piece of wood rather, and put it through metal. Anything else? Yes? Something like provides, even if someone's edges will provide for it. So God is providing for everyone. Right? Krishna talks about this in Maharaj, how the water, the rain comes on the ocean. Anything else? Yes? He wants us to learn something? Oh, he wants us to learn something. We're all curious, aren't we? Aren't we all curious? Again, even tiny, tiny life forms show curiosity. Even plants show curiosity. Anything else? Yes? He has a expansion. Mm, how could you tell that? Oh, okay. So just like we reproduce, that God must also have some sort of extensions. I think we can also tell that God likes individuality and variety. I like to say he's a real variety man. You know, as I said, each leaf on every tree, each flower on every plant is different. Each of you know, each snowflake is different. Right? If I were God, I, I wouldn't bother. <laughs> Who looks at each snowflake? Who's going to care? <laughs> no, I would just make them all the same. But he makes every snowflake different, every grain of sand different. Obviously, he cares. Each fingerprint is different. You know, I mean, how long does a snowflake last for? Like that long? 
and so there's infinite variety. So we can understand that, frankly, without the association of devotees, is my point. All of these things we've talked about. Prabhupada says that. It says it in the Bhagavatam, right? One can have nature as one's teacher. But what could we not do without the association of devotees? What could we not know? What could we not do? We couldn't know his name. What else could we not know? We wouldn't know what pleases him the most. What else could we not know? Huh? We couldn't take prasadam, no. We wouldn't know how to awaken love for him. We'd know that somebody was there. We wouldn't know how to contact him. We wouldn't know any pastimes. We wouldn't know anything beyond this world. We wouldn't, we wouldn't know what, what are Krishna's activities, what are the Lord's activities beyond this world. Would we know he's a you know, blackish, bluish teenager playing a flute and taking care of cows? I mean, how would we know that? And we wouldn't know, we wouldn't know about his personal nature and we wouldn't know the process for accessing him. Right? We wouldn't know how to get in touch with him. We know he was there. Just like I know somebody made this rug, but I wouldn't know their name, I wouldn't know their address, I wouldn't know how to contact them. For that, I would have to either find them personally or know someone who knows them. So without Sadhu Sangha in the beginning, this is not possible. The first step is Adushradha. There's a God, there's something spiritual in life, but you're not doing anything about it. And most of the religious people in the world are on this platform of Adhishraddha. The vast, vast majority of people in the world who say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Muslim, I'm a Jew, I'm whatever, I'm a Hindu, are just on this Adhishraddha platform. It's like saying, I know there's a God, I know there's a spiritual path, but they're not acting on it. They're not doing anything. And without Sadhu Sangha, you can't go to the next step can't go to the next step. And it's logical to say, if there's a creator and maintainer who has all these qualities, then he must also have provided some means to contact him. If there's love and kindness and beauty in the world, then a person who's full of love and kindness and beauty and intelligence must have provided for some means of contact. There must be some contact control. So this is the beginning of Sadhusan. And it's so nice in Lord Chaitanya's process that the way we first connect people to the Lord is through prasadam and singing and dancing. Wow. Of all the processes of connecting with God, Kevalananda Kanda, we don't say in the beginning to people, or we shouldn't say, please don't say in the beginning to people, you know, you have to just control your senses. And you have these four regular principles. Unless you're following all of them, you can't even come into this book. Don't talk about it, please. Oh, I mean, when I, when I first visited, actually it was the second visit I had to a temple. First visit, I talked to uh, Jadarani, and I became, you know, I said, yes, okay, I believe in Krishna consciousness. This is what I want to do. And the next time that I came, somebody else talked to me. I was 14 at the time. And I said, what do I have to do to take up this process? And she said, well, the ashram is full. You'll have to get your own apartment. <laughs> I was 14 years old. <laughs> she didn't even ask me how old I was. 
And uh, she never said to me, you know, you could start chanting Hare Krishna, you can start offering your food or, or anything. So, well, you know, when we're going to have this beginning sadhu sangha with people, Prabhupada lists these four things. Service, prasadam, chanting, and dancing. Service, prasadam, chanting, and dancing. And this is the beginning water and sunlight that awakens this seed of everyone has this inherent love for God. And don't get discouraged if, you, if the person doesn't immediately commit. Some people will. Some people will come to the temple one day and then they say, yes. Generally, Rupa Goswami says, that's because their seed started sprouting in another lifetime. Or maybe they did some, you know, agyata sukriti you don't know about before you met them. Uh, maybe they heard the Harinam party or something in another place. Uh, but don't be discouraged. First the seed is putting down roots and growing underground, and then there's the two little embryonic leaves, and then there's the true leaves. But that is Sadhusanga, and Prabhupada says we should all become pure Vaishnavas and give this Sadhusanga to everyone. Pure Vaishnavas? You have to become a pure Vaishnava? By the way, will we ever think we're a pure Vaishnava in that sense? Do any of the pure Vaishnavas in that sense ever think I'm a pure Vaishnava? No. So then we're kind of hopeless. So that can't be what Prabhupada meant. But a pure Vaishnava in the sense is someone who's doing Uttam Bhakti. Anyabhilasita Sunyam Gyanakama Anabhutam Anukulana Krishna Anusurinam Bhakti Uttama. Someone who's in the pure process of Bhakti. Someone who's not doing Karma Mishra Bhakti, Gyan Mishra Bhakti, Yoga Mishra Bhakti. Someone who's engaged in pure bhakti and with the desire only to love Krishna. That if I have other desires, my desire for my other desires is to become free of them. Does that make sense? Did you all follow that English? Like Prahlad Maharaj said to the single day, please let there not be any other material desires in my heart. So if we know we're full of material desires, but our desire is to be free of them, and our desire is to attain love, even if we're just desiring to desire to desire to attain love. Uh, that is anyabhilasita suryam, gyanakamar anabhutam. If we think only bhakti will purify me, I don't have to be bhakti, do bhakti and pious, I don't have to do bhakti and philosophical detachment, I don't have to do bhakti and pranayam. I mean, obviously I'm going to be pious, and obviously I'm going to study philosophy, and I may do pranayam, but it's bhakti that's purifying not these other processes. And we engaged in favorable acts to please Krishna, both uh, externally and internally. Then we're pure Vaishnavas. In other words, we're not professional people. We're not teaching Krishna consciousness to get donations. We're not teaching Krishna consciousness for name and fame and so forth. So we should become like that. We should be following Rupa Goswami's formula for pure bhakti. And then uh, we can give everybody this service. What are the four things again? Service, prasadam, chanting, and dancing. This is attractive to everyone in the world. This is attractive to everyone in the world. It's not sectarian. It's not a religion. It's attractive to everyone in the world. And it starts this bhakti creeper growing. All right, what about the intermediate stage of bhakti? You know, once your creeper actually starts growing and you've actually got some leaves coming up, still the bhakti plant is kind of delicate, isn't it? Right? Yes? No? 
So in that stage also we need sadhusanga. Sadhusanga is not just a distinct stage of bhakti. You know, adhushrata, sadhusanga, bhajanakriya. It's not like you just have sadhusanga to bring you from adhushrata to bhajanakriya, which is what we've just been talking about. But in everything, satam prasanga, mamadurya, sambhado, bhavanti, rikarna, rasayana, tajyoshana, dhyat, bhavabharga, bhartmini, shraddha, ratir, bhakti, anukramishriti. So how does Sadhusanga help us in this intermediate stage of bhakti, which is, I think, probably what most of us here are in? So the Sadhusanga gives us an example, gives us a template. When I say surrender to Krishna, okay, what does that mean, surrender to Krishna? What does that look like? You can read the six symptoms of surrender. But it's nice to have a model. Oh, like this. How did Arjuna do it? How did Draupadi do it? Or how did, you know, Krishna Das and the Brahmachari Ashram do it? How is he surrendering? You see a model. How did Srila Prabhupada surrender? You follow what I'm saying? Prabhupada says example is better than precept. And that doesn't just mean that our setting an example is more important than what we preach. It also means that having an example is better than a theory. It looks like this. And you see, the Shastra is full of stories of devotees. But also we have devotees in our movement. Here's a surrendered devotee. Here's a, a gentle devotee. Here's a humble devotee. What does humility look like? That we hear, oh, I should be humble. And we think humble, humble. What does that mean? Oh, it must mean lying. Okay. Oh, I'm so stupid. I'm so useless. We don't believe any of that, right? And we think, oh, that must be humble. And then we have an example. We see, okay, Jayananda, he's humble. Or Gopi Paranadana Prabhu, he's humble. I gave an example of Radhika Raman with the Bhagavatam. He's also very humble. So we can see, oh, this is what it looks like to be humble. We have a template. Also, we please Krishna by pleasing his devotee. This is a natural psychology. One of the biggest problems with being a Gurukul teacher was that your relationship with the parents changes. They were your buddies before you became the teacher of their child, and now you're not their buddy anymore. A warning to any of you who become Gurukul teachers. So, you know, if you have to go to a parent, and if you go to the parent and say, your kid is wonderful, that, that's fine. But if you go to the parent and say, um, listen, your child had some misbehavior in school, and, you know, we had to give him a time out, and it was really a problem, and so forth and so on, then they hate you. You know, they, they literally hate you. And they'll do anything in their power to destroy you. So it's... it's <laughs> really? You know, it's, and you're kind of like... What is that? But this is the, the mood. Right? The, actually, in the animal world, the attachment, particularly of the mother... Uh, but the parents to the child is stronger than the sexual drive. This, you know, protection of the young. So Krishna has this feeling also. It was so funny. We were, we were reading the other day, as I said, we were... Oh, this is some nectar devotion. I was think we were... Mars and I were talking that I might just teach nectar devotion here. So Next I was, class. Next morning. Oh! Really? Yeah. Oh, thank you. I wanted to do that, but I didn't know if that would be okay with you. So. It's okay. It's okay. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'm so happy. So I was, you know, going back into deeply studying. I mean, 
not that I have no deeply studying, whatever, whatever. I was going back into studying nectar devotion, and so we come into this, one of the qualities of Krishna, that he loves his devotees. And so who's given as an example by Rupa Goswami is Bhishma, okay? And Bhishma gives the example of how much Krishna loved him. He says, Krishna, you love your devotees so much. No, don't try this at home. So even though I was trying to kill Arjuna, you still love me. And you came to see me at the hour of death. And I was thinking, well, that's really interesting because Arjuna's also a devotee. Arjuna is also but Krishna loves his devotees so much he came to see Bhishma at the hour of death but one of the funniest stories this is really really a funny story so you know about uh, Gajendra the elephant right everybody knows this story Gajendra was this he had been a king who became a yogi in Vajuna and he was in meditation and in meditation he didn't hear a sage coming to visit him and the sage cursed him and said you're, you know, you're big and strong, but you're stupid like an elephant, so become an elephant. You know, in those days, the Brahmins had power like that. So he became an elephant in his next life. But he had some remembrance of his previous life, especially he could, he could remember a prayer that he'd learned as Indra Prabhupada says in that purport, in addition to the Hare Krishna mantra, we should memorize some prayers like Brahma Samhita. So if by chance we become an animal in the next life, <laughs> Prabhupada says, okay become like that cat in the Hillsborough Temple. <laughs> he would also sit outside a Bhagavatam class and he'd be quiet for the whole Bhagavatam class and as soon as the speaker said questions, he'd go, meow. <laughs> <laughs> I never heard him chant the promise of Hita. So anyway, so this Gajendra, so he's in the water and he get attacked by, get attacked by a crocodile. The crocodile's holding onto his foot. Right? And when Lord Vishnu comes, what does he do? He releases Gajendra and the crocodile. And in one lecture, it's not in the purple, but in the lecture, Shiva Prabhupada said the reason that Lord Vishnu liberated an entity that was in the form of a crocodile is, anybody know? Why did Vishnu not only liberate the elephant, but also the crocodile? Why the crocodile? What was he doing that pleased Krishna? <laughs> Who said that? Aha. Uh-huh. If you have any Maha sweets, he gets one. Uh-huh. And he's holding on, and, and this devotee. And the person who said that Krishna was funny. We should really have some rewards here. I'm sorry, the teacher, you know. We should have some rewards to give you guys stickers or something. You know? He was holding on to the feet of a devotee. He was biting the feet of a devotee. So again, don't try this at home, please. Don't shoot arrows at devotees or bite the devotees' feet. Not recommended. Not recommended process. But he was, he was, because he was holding on the feet of a devotee. Now, you want to compound how extraordinary this is. Gajendra is given as the example by Rupa Goswami, Nectar Devotion, of what kind of a devotee? What level of devotee? A kanista. Yes, of the four types, those who want happiness, those who want freedom from distress, those who are curious, and those who are already grown and realized. Gajendra is the example of those who wanted freedom from distress. So he's given as the kanista devotee who wants freedom from distress. 
So Krishna likes his devotees so much that even a Kanista devotee who's coming to Krishna for freedom of, for distress, and even you're biting his foot, because you have a connection with his foot, Krishna will save you. Just imagine if you actually serve advanced devotees. Now Krishna is also pleased by cooperation between the devotees. So he's not generally pleased by arrow throwing and foot biting. He's generally pleased by cooperation. And the big example of this is the Prachetas. That the Prachetas were ten brothers and they were cooperating. And Krishna was very, very pleased. So when, you know, maybe some of you know, I grew up, grew up in a Jewish family and we had a, a song we were singing from the Bible. Uh, actually, our godbrother Havi has put the Hare Krishna mantra to this tune. He was singing it at New Vrindavan at the festival of inspiration. How wonderful it is when brothers sit together in peace. My dear friends, if we want the advantage of the association of devotees, can we please treat each other nicely? Please. Pretty please. In the name of assuring the purity of the ISKCON movement, it doesn't mean you have to smash and bash and blaspheme and denigrate anybody who has a slightly different opinion of how we should preach Krishna consciousness than you do. It's not what it means. And it's not going to attract anybody. We'll cultivate people. We'll give them prasadam. We'll give them service. We'll get them to chant and dance. We'll give them the books, and they'll be so enlivened, and they'll come to our centers, and people are going. And then they will say, "I what do I want to be here for?" Right? And maybe some of us have experienced that. And. We just say, I think I'll just worship my deities at home. Thank you very much. So Krishna's pleased by cooperation among the devotees. Now you could say, well, in the spiritual world, there's sometimes criticism, but it's all loving. It's all loving. It's, there's no envy. You know, yeah, there are different groups of cowherd boys and different groups of gopis and different groups of cows even. And they compete to please Krishna, but they're loving. Well, there, there's no, there's no malice. There's, there's no, you know, false ego like that. It, it's they're able to be. That's why I probably say we should talk about unity in diversity. My dear, dear, dear friends, we are all individuals. We are eternally individuals. It was a letter that a devotee wrote to Shiva Prabhupada. Said any difference of opinion means that there's impersonalism. Prabhupada said no, it means that it's personalism. He said, we can't disagree about the process, but we're going to have differences of opinion. That's normal, it's natural, it's because we are persons. There are people in our movement, especially the GBC, whose duty it is to guard the Siddhanta. And if we think that the Siddhanta is being messed with, we should go to the guardians. Okay? We shouldn't be having flame wars with each other because we think people are messing up the Siddhanta, or we think because, you know, somebody preaches through a yoga class that therefore that they're ruining everything in Krishna consciousness. Mm-hmm. We really, this is not going to please Krishna, and this is not Sadhu Sangha. It's just not, it's not, it's not, it's not. 
please don't do this. Will we eventually go back to Godhead because we're associating with devotees? Yes. Even if we bite them. Yes. But it may be a long eventually. And we may have to suffer a lot in the meantime for biting the devotees. Devotees are very, very precious. Actually, every soul is precious. And it's not, this is not just advanced devotees, even, even neophyte devotees. The other story about this is Guru Maharaj. When uh, his stepmother insulted him, was he a devotee? No, he wasn't even a beginning devotee. He was just a materialistic person. And he's also given as the example by Rupa Goswami of a neophyte. But Saruchi offended him. You know, she was the, the typical, I'm disinheriting you stepmother. I had one of those. You know, very, very typical. I'm the stepmother and I'm disinheriting you from your father. And, and his ego was bruised. But because she offended him, Lord Vishnu said she was going to die. Her son would be killed by yakshas and she would follow him and she would die in a forest fire. And Robert says in that purport, if you please a devotee, you get all perfection, but if you offend a devotee, you do not know where you're going. And Dhruva was not a devotee when she offended him. Everyone is ultimately a devotee. Everyone. We shouldn't offend anyone. We shouldn't offend even bugs. We should never offend or blaspheme anyone. What to speak of someone who's actively engaged in service? Who are we? Are we faultless? That we're going to point, what did Jesus say? He said, you know, if you think there's a speck in your brother's eye, you hypocrite, get the log out of your own eye, and then you can better see the speck in your brother's eye. You know, this is also true. We were having these three days about family. You know, it's so typical. Before someone gets married, they just think, what's the perfect woman who will serve me? What's the perfect man who will serve me? And they never sit around and think, well, who am I? What do I have to offer? You know, I was working with my grandchildren looking for a spouse for them, so we made a list. What are you looking for in a spouse, and what do you have to offer? Who are you? You know, I remember one time I was in a temple and this goddess is eons ago and I got really upset with some devotees and then all of a sudden I thought, but what do they have to put up with from me? You know, so we're, we're thinking, oh, these devotees have this problem and that problem. We don't think, well, I have so many problems and they're tolerating me. I like this that um, St. Thomas Kempis, who was a 13th century monk who was also a vegetarian, so he wrote a, a wonderful thing. He says, anybody can live with pleasant and agreeable and compatible people. He said, but you're really tested when you live with people who are difficult. He said, and, you know, the, the weakest people, they're disturbed by others and they lose their peace. Median people, they keep their peace in difficulty. And the best people, they not only keep their peace, but they bring peace to others. You know, blessed are the peacemakers. So let us not create disharmony, let us create harmony. And this is part of our sadhu sangha as, as practitioners of bhakti. We're preparing for the spiritual world where everything is a person. That you not only are getting along with the devotees who have human-like form, but also the tables. The ground is, is alive and personal. The tables, the flowers, everything. 
and there's a full mood of cooperation. So we're practicing for the spiritual world where there's cooperation. Also, of course, we get inspiration from the devotees. You know, when Krishna consciousness seems hard or difficult, we get inspiration from others' faith, from others' happiness. And ultimately, we get the inspiration from the other devotees to become attached to Krishna. We see their attachment to Krishna, and we grow in attachment to Krishna. And this leads us to, as Mahaprabhu was saying, how that even at the stage of Krishna Prema, the devotees are still there. What did he call them? Anybody remember? From the verse long, long ago that we saw on the board, on the screen. He said, a Krishna Prema, Sadhu Sangha, is the? Mukya Anga. The chief Anga. So why is that? So those of you familiar with the nectar of devotion will know that rasa has five components. A lot of times we talk about rasa, we're just talking about the stai bhav. But it has an, uh, one of the, that's not enough if there's just stai bhav. There has to be what's called vibhav, or what brings out one's feeling of love for Krishna. So this vibhav has two main, this is when you really want a flip chart or something, because otherwise you guys are going, what? Huh? So the what? The, what was that? So the Bibab has two subcategories, what's called the Alambana and the Udipana. You don't have to remember any of these Sanskrit terms, so it's just fine. It's just not, it's not important. What brings out our love? So we can think of a material example. What makes you feel friendship? A friend. What makes you feel parental? A child. What makes you feel romantic? A person who attracts you romantically. Right? Does this make sense to everybody? That it's what stimulates that feeling. You see a friend and you feel friendship. But there's something else that stimulates that, and that's another person who feels similar to you. So if you meet a friend and you also meet someone who's a friend of your friend, a mutual friend, that enhances your feeling of friendship. Does this make sense to everybody? Husband and wife their feelings of parental care for the children are enhanced by each other. Yes? You see this particularly when both parents are the, when they're both the parents, when they're both the biological parents or they both adopted the child. Sometimes this gets messed up when one is a step. We won't say anything further about that. But this concept that the devotee is the repository of the love for Krishna. There's the ashraya and the vishaya. So the Krishna, our attachment is to Krishna, but the devotee who has love for Krishna is something like, it's never going to be exactly like, but something like the love we have for Krishna or we want to have for Krishna, they are the repository of that love. And without contacting them and that love, we will not develop our full love for Krishna. And that remains. We see the song Sri Rupa Manjari Pada. Some of you are familiar with this one? Where we find an outpouring of love for the devotee, almost like for Krishna. Oh, Rupa Manjari, if I can't see you, then I'm like I'm bitten by a poisonous snake. So at the highest level of bhakti in Goloka Vrindavan, everyone is attached not only to Krishna, but to a devotee of Krishna. So those in parental mood, they're attached to Krishna and Yasoda, or Krishna and Nanda, or Krishna and Rohini, or Krishna and Mukara. Those who are attached in 
friendly love. They're attached to Krishna and Sudama, or Krishna and Utvala, Krishna and Madhumanga. Because that person is the repository and stimulates their love for Krishna. So even in the most advanced stage, so from the beginning to the advanced, then how do we associate with devotees? So this is given very nicely in many, many places, but especially by Rupa Goswami in his Upadeshamrita text 4. So there, Rupa Goswami is talking about giving and receiving. Some of us are better at giving and some of us are better at receiving. But both giving and receiving. And we give and receive what three things? Prasadam, gifts, and confidences. So these are exchanges of love. And Srila Prabhupada in that purport says something very astonishing, actually two very astonishing things about ISKCON in relationship to these loving exchanges. Anyone tell me what they are? The purpose of ISKCON is to facilitate these loving exchanges. The purpose of ISKCON is to facilitate these loving exchanges. If we are running a center that's connected with ISKCON, if we visit a place connected with ISKCON, if we do anything as a representative of ISKCON, our purpose is to facilitate these loving exchanges. Our purpose is not to preach philosophy. It's not our purpose. Our purpose is to facilitate these loving exchanges. Our purpose is not get them somehow or other to do some service if you have to guilt trip them or whatever. Our purpose is to facilitate these loving exchanges. And what else did he say in that purport? that our society is what? Nourished. Very nice. So nice to have people read Prabhupada's books. I mean, it, it really gives me hope for the, for the longevity, of, in the healthy longevity of our Iskand society. Without reading Prabhupada's books, well, Prabhupada says everything becomes rubbish. Um, everywhere I go, I hear people saying concocted things. Everywhere I go. And I'll say, what's your praman? Where have you heard this? Where is it from? And if you don't read Srila Prabhupada's books, you don't know. And you'll be led astray. And eventually our whole movement will go. Who knows where? So our society is nourished. To be nourished means to be healthy. Please do not think that it's absolutely guaranteed that our ISKCON society is going to be the main flag bearer in Mahaprabhu's movement. Prabhupada never said that. He would say, you know, if, if you let personal ambition get there, everything will be ruined. If you make everything a bureaucracy, everything will be ruined. If you think the deities are a burden, everything will be ruined. There's so many things that Prabhupada said. If you do this, then you'll spoil everything. We can't spoil Mahaprabhu's movement. And frankly, we can't spoil Srila Prabhupada's preaching either. But we, we can spoil what we're doing. So these loving exchanges, what does it mean that they're loving? It means that we're really trying to please people. That means that we give prasadam that people are likely to eat. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> did my grandfather go out? So we, we went to one temple in the United States of America, okay? It wasn't... Oh, I don't know. It's it's the far the far east island. So we went to one temple there where everything was full of chilies. 
The rice was full of Chinese. The rice. It's like, how are you going to invite Americans to eat here? There wasn't anything they would like to eat. You know, I've been to temples, in, again, in America, where the subji is oil, chilies, and a few chickpeas, and a few pieces of potato. I know what Americans going to eat that? Nobody. You know, the prasada should be what people are going to eat. This is such an elementary thing. If it's actually an exchange of love. Well, and when I receive prasadam, I should remember, you know, not only that Krishna is in the prasadam. I love this pastime where Lord Chaitanya says, you know, what is this prasadam? It's not just the ingredients. It's also Krishna's. It's a taste of God. We shouldn't eat prasadam like an animal. I mean, even if you're a dog, it's even in a saint's dog, and you eat prasadam, you go back to God. Okay. But we should try to not be dogs. <laughs> We should eat prasadam with consciousness. We're actually honoring prasadam. We're respecting prasadam. That means meditating on the prasadam. Even materially to meditate on food. What is food? So it's, let, let's take rice. Okay? Most of us here eat rice? Quinoa. Okay, everybody eats that. <laughs> Non-rice eaters. So, take quinoa. So, what is it? It's formed mostly from what? What's the plant creating that from? From what? Sun and water and a little bit of earth minerals. Primarily sun. The plant is taking sunlight and transforming it into food. What is the sunlight? Ultimately, what is the sunlight? Krishna's energy. It's a reflection of the what? The Brahma Jyoti. Krishna says, I am the light of the sun. So the sunlight has gotten transformed into this quinoa, and then we eat it, and our fire of digestion, which is also Krishna, transforms it into a fingernail. Is that cool or what? I mean, my fingernail a couple days ago was quinoa. And a little bit before that, it was sunlight. So meditate while we're eating. These verses we talked about as far as, you know, not being drained at work. So the, these verses in the, what chapters again in the Bhagavad Gita? 7, 9, 10, and 15. We should meditate on this while we're eating. I am the air of life, digesting the food. I am the light of the sun. Krishna says in the 11th canto, he says, I, I am water, taste, and its ability to quench thirst. And not only is it just food, but Krishna's eating it. It's not ordinary food. So when we're receiving prasadam, and then not only to think how it's Krishna and Krishna's taste, but somebody cooked it, some person cooked it. To thank the person, be grateful for the person, the person who's serving it, the person who's cleaning it up. Be personal, how radical is that? Not just that, oh, now I can come and eat. Let me come to the temple just on time for the prasadam. We're really good at that. Let me come just on time for the prasadam and hurry up and eat and leave. But it's it's a nourishment of our loving relationships with the devotees. And then gifts. 
Gift is giving people what they would like, which is also pretty radical. That doesn't just mean what's what's old and broken in my house that I want to get rid of. (laughs) Or what someone else gave me as a gift, and I don't know, do you like this? You know, trying to give people what they'd like and what they could use and what they need. I remember one time there was some devotee event and people were giving gifts, and my oldest son, who has ten children, so some of them, of course, are quite small. So he was given a a blue... I wish I was making... I really wish I was making this up. He was given a blue china dog. (laughs) I've got one and two-year-olds in the house. So he's kind of looking at this, you know. (laughs) So to give gifts that actually people want and people need and will make them happy, that means, oh my God, you've got to know them a little bit. You've got to get to know other people and know what they would like. And we receive gifts, even if it's a blue china dog. My mommy taught me when I was six years old that even if you get a blue china dog for your birthday, you say thank you. So to receive gifts and to, to understand the, the, there was some affection in the gift giver. Then the biggest, I think, is confidences. Speaking our mind in confidence should, should be a loving exchange. If I go to a devotee to reveal my mind, it should not be a garbage dump. I should not be vomiting on that devotee. <laughs> Here's all the trash in my mind. Please clean it up for me. That's not a loving exchange. So when I go to the devotees and reveal my mind, there should be some Krishna element in there. There should be a way I'm giving them a gift by revealing my mind. And when I hear the devotees reveal their mind, I shouldn't just immediately tell them how stupid and foolish and useless they are. Oh, you have that problem? (laughs) What's wrong with you? (laughs) You should have gotten over that problem ten years ago, (laughs) Prabhu. But when we receive devotees' confidences, we should also be receiving as a gift. Sadhu Sangha, Sadhu Sangha, Sarva Shastra Kway, Sadhu Sangha, Sadhu Sangha. Sarva City Hoya. Whether it's just at the beginning to plant that seed, to bring people from there must be something in life besides materialism to there's a beautiful <coughs> cowherd boy playing his flute whose name is Krishna and you can access him through service, prasadam, chanting and dancing to the intermediate phase where we learn, I hope, to cooperate with the devotees to take example from the devotees, inspiration from the devotees, eat to the highest stage where we love Krishna by worshiping and emulating the devotee in our in the mood of our swarup. In all of these stages, we have the six loving exchanges, and then through this sadhu sangha, everything we do becomes nourished. As this is the root, this is the root of bhakti and the supreme anga of love. And of course, this festival is very much for that purpose. But this should be the purpose always within our communities. Mars has talked a lot about stability of ashram. This also means stability of community. Not that we just have stability in our own ashram and we have sadhu sangha within our ashram, but we start to build a society where we help each other, where we serve each other, where we connect with each other, where someone can come and say, 
not only that there's love in the house between husband and wife and parents and children, love between the renunciates and the ashram, uh, but also love in the community in general. That we help, we support each other. We're there for each other, and we don't denigrate or attack each other. So thank you very much. We have a little bit of time for questions. Questions? Yes. I'm often wondering how uh, how subtle Oh, definitely. And, and one thing that'll happen as you progress in chanting is you'll notice more and more subtly how, you know, what is criticism and what is offensiveness. You'll, you'll start to become aware in yourself. Yeah, and it's a contamination. I mean, you'll, you'll find if you, if you hear um, criticism and blasphemy, it's hard to chant. Have you all found this? I mean, Krishna says in the 11th canto, he said there's hardly any saintly person that can resettle their mind after hearing harsh words of uncivilized men. Or women, I would assume. And he says that arrow that goes into the heart doesn't cause as much pain as harsh words of uncivilized people. Yes, and it can be very subtle because the, the pure, one of the symptoms of a pure devotee, Nectar of Instruction, text 5, is that they're free from the propensity to criticize. Not just criticism, but even the propensity to You know, we may have it well up in our heart and go, you know, but the, the topmost devotee, doesn't, it's not even there. There's no tendency. Anybody else? Yes? Thomas Akempis. Yeah, he's saying um, that if you can keep your peace and also have a problem with others, that's that. Yes. And then you just said that um, um, it's very difficult for... To, even, even, even a saintly person. Get, 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 get that peace back. Yeah. No, so how do you put those together? Uh, Judd Bharat, after being insulted by Maharaj Rahugana, it said he felt waves of dissatisfaction in his mind. And this relates to the question the other day about, you know, what do you do with the fact that as long as you have a material body, there's still going to be lust and anger coming into the body. The way that the, uh, as opposed to just a saintly person, the saintly persons are those who've achieved perfection in karma yoga, jnana yoga, and dhyana yoga. And those, that kind of perfection is you try to situate your mind in sattva guru. And from there, you want to progress to Brahman realization. If you're just in sattva guna, sattva guna is not entirely stable. Sattva guna can be affected by Rajas and Thomas. As Krishna says, the modes are uh, always vying for supremacy. And even Brahman realization, avasuddha buddhiya, you're... We're not really situated in our position. When we're situated in our position, we have something better to engage our mind. And our peace is coming then, not exactly from situating the mind in sattva, though that that also happens, but from having something better going on that the other things are of no consequence. And the better thing we have going on is absorption in Krishna's Nam Guna Rupa 
that as we progress in bhakti, we should come to a point, we'll talk about this briefly with the stages of meditation. Eventually you have spiritual television going on in the heart. So why should you care, you know, about these other things? They become insignificant. I mean, we all experience this even materially. If I'm very absorbed in something, I may not even notice other things. Right? You know what I'm saying? If, it, if you're about to go to India, you know, you're about to go to Vrindavan, you're getting ready to go, and as you're packing and getting ready to go to the plane, somebody says something nasty, you may just, oh, God, who cares? I'm like, you understand? You just don't even pay any attention. I don't have time for this. It just, you notice it, and there may be some disturbance that comes in the mind, but you don't grab it. The unsettling of the mind is when we try to either grab it or, or push it away, attachment or, or aversion. But if you're absorbed in Krishna, you neither grab it nor push it away. You just look at it and go, oh, yeah. Harsh words of uncivilized people, harsh behavior of uncivilized people. What a shame. It's calling you to what you expect. People fight and call you just to fight. They don't even know what they're fighting about. Did you ever happen? Had that happen? A few years later, you're like, I know I had a big fight with my husband. I remember where we were, but what were we fighting about? Yes, we Oh, I like that very much. That's very well. Very well. I mean, all of that is there. You know, there's some prema even in Anushraddha. Stages are not absolutely distinct. So in one sense, all of those are all three. Are all running through all three. But yes, some are going to be dominant at certain points. That's a very nice analysis. Thank you. receiving end of all three. You know, if you receive prasadam that you can't possibly eat or digest, if you receive a gift that you can't possibly use, you know, if you receive somebody's confidential thoughts that are just disturbing and, and difficult, you know, what do you do when you're on the receiving end of someone who didn't give the gift lovingly? Then somehow find some Krishna there to receive something some that's what Krishna does 
Krishna found something worthy in Putana to receive. Krishna found something worthy in the crocodile to reward. So we find something. We're part of Krishna. We're Krishna's servants. As Krishna's servant and as Krishna's um, representative, we should find something worthy that we can receive. We may, you may not actually eat the food. You understand? You may not use the gift. You may not internalize or, or meditate on the thing that you heard or you read. But but something. I mean, like, when, when, I, when I have the great misfortune to hear one devotee criticizing another, I always go to, they're trying to keep purity in Prabhupada's movement. That's why they're doing it. They may be doing it for other reasons, like envy, but I, I don't want to look at that. I want to say, at least they believe that that's what their reason is. They believe that they, they don't want some impurity to come into Srila Prabhupada's movement. Yeah, try to find some, some, something. Even if you don't take it at all. You understand? You, you don't, you're not, you're, you're going to not take it in. But there, there's something. Yeah. Is that okay? Anybody else? Yes. I find that sometimes in my interactions with certain devotees, um, when I'm having service related interactions, the same issues come up over and over again. And then I, I find that I prefer to just avoid dealing with them rather than, yeah, yeah rather than actually solving the problem and moving ahead. Mm. So, how do you avoid this impersonal? Solution to a problem. Mm. Well, sometimes that, sometimes avoiding certain people is a good solution. It's not that we should never avoid anybody. There are, you know, certain people you should love and respect from a distance, and certain people you should love and respect from a very far distance. <laughs> We're actually, you know, the acharyas tell us to do that. They tell us to discriminate. You, know, you can't imitate an Uttama Adhikari that just says, I love everybody. It, it doesn't. It doesn't work. But if we're doing that as a general tactic, that every time there's some difficult dealing with somebody, we avoid them, then what, where are we going to the Brahma Jodi? I mean, that that's not really going to solve our problem. I think again, part of it is remembering that I also annoy other people. I mean, it's it's hard to understand. Most of us like I annoy anybody. <laughs> I'm so full of good qualities, and I, you know, yeah, I have some problems, but, you know, they're minor. And all my problems are just the, the, the result of my good intentions gone awry, you know, that, that's all. I mean, I have such good intentions, but sometimes it just comes out wrong. So we think like that about ourselves, which is, by the way, totally not the case, in actual fact, <laughs> uh, but at least not for me. Not for all of you, I'm sure. But we, we, we forget that other people have to put up with stuff from me. You know, that I'm selfish and I'm inconsiderate and I'm envious and I'm greedy and I'm exploitive. And somehow they're putting up with me. They're feeding me. Oh my God. The devotees are feeding me and they're smiling at me and they're dancing with me in the kirtan. How kind they are. That may help. 
Okay, thank you very much. All the Vaishnav devotees, Kija.